You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. This evening through Christmas, and then actually the last Sunday of this month, we have Mr. David Allison is going to be preaching a sermon here. I'm very excited to see that, and he is terrified, so make sure you make fun of him a little bit as you see him. He's the short man in the back wearing a blue sweatshirt. Yeah. All right. Hi, Dave. Anyway, yeah, I'll be preaching at the end of this month. Uh, but until then, uh, we are doing something through Christmas, and what we're doing is we are going to celebrate Advent. Right? Advent means coming. We're celebrating Christmas, essentially, which is something that Revolution has only done a couple of other times. <laughs> Since I've been the pastor. Not that we don't celebrate Christmas, but I mean as a congregation. Uh, so, you know, it may be a good idea to make this a yearly thing. Um, a lot of churches do. Who knows what's going to happen? Maybe we'll do this again next year. Maybe we won't. Um, but for the next three weeks, what we're going to do, the, the idea of doing this isn't just because every other church uh, has an Advent series or a Christmas series. Uh, but my goal in wanting to do this short little three-week thing uh, is to prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas properly. Um, to truly celebrate uh, the incarnation of the Son of God. Because in a day where Christmas has become so ridiculously commercialized, uh, it's so easy to forget to be distinct from the world as we celebrate this holy day, this holiday Christmas. So as the world celebrates uh, family, and as the world celebrates getting together and giving and receiving presents, because if you ask most secular people, that is what Christmas is about, is family and getting together and all of that stuff. And all that comes with this season, as the world celebrates those things, we are celebrating the incarnation of God the Son. Keep that in your minds. Keep that in the forefront of your minds as you, as you go through this Advent season. We are celebrating the incarnation of Jesus. This is one of the greatest mysteries of all time. It is the greatest reason for us to celebrate, because with no incarnation, there is no cross. With no incarnation of God the Son, there is no forgiveness of sins. But in order to prepare our hearts to celebrate the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, I thought it would be good uh, for us to reflect on the biblical narrative of redemption. So unless I change my mind, here's the next three weeks in a nutshell. The needed Savior, the promised Savior, and the born and returning Savior. All right, so I, that last one might be subject to change, but that's where I'm going at so far. Um, but this evening, we're going to begin with the first thing, our great need for a Savior. This is something that goes neglected in the church at large in the West, and especially around Christmas, because no one wants to be a drag or be a bummer around Christmas. Uh, but we tend to gloss over this truth that we need a Savior. We skip over that and go right on to the birth of Jesus and all the nativity scenes and all that terrible terrible movies and stuff anyway sorry kind of a scrooge um but if we do that if we skip over our needing for a save our need of a savior then christmas is taken out of context straight up if we don't keep first things first we needed a savior christmas is taken out of context and people forget exactly why jesus christ came into the world exactly why we celebrate the birth of the lord jesus this baby was born to die. This baby Christ, this baby Jesus was born to die. He was born to proclaim salvation to sinners through the blood of his cross. We cannot forget that. So let's start with our need for Christ. The truth that we are ruined sinners in need of a great Savior. So just so you know, I'm going to be starting out with a root text in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. 
but then we're going to be jumping around the Bible so that we can see the totality of our needs. So this is going to be a little bit different than what you're used to, where I'll take like two verses and spend forever on those. We're going to be jumping in a lot of spots, and you're not going to be able to catch me, I would imagine. Uh, so just the, it'll be up here. Feel free to try to flip through your Bibles. That's beautiful. Um, but we're going to be spending a good amount of time in the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at the Torah. We're going to be looking at the law. But Romans chapter 5, verse 12, our anchor text for this evening. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Let's pray. Father, thank you as always for your word. Your holy word that is sufficient to show us what we are, to show us who you are, to show us what you've done for us and what our response ought to be. God, I pray you would reveal to us our sin this evening. Believers and unbelievers alike that are gathered here with us, show us who we are. Show us what we are. Show us our great need for Christ. And then show Christ to us. Let us behold him as if someone held a picture up to our face. Let us see him rightly. And let us fall on our knees before him and worship, trusting him. Thank you for the Savior. Let us see him this evening. In Christ's name. Amen. All right, so in this one verse, Romans 5, 12, Paul lays down the truth that we're driving at this evening. Okay, this is a huge part of the sermon. That through the sin of one man, Adam, through the sin of one man, all people after him and including him are made sinners. So my goal this evening is not to teach you anything new. Most of you have heard this. Some of you maybe haven't. This is going to be a good time. But my goal is not to teach you anything that you've never heard. Rather, I want to hammer home to all of us our great need for a Savior. I want us to see our ruin. I want us to see our wretched estate, as the Puritans would say. I want us to see our ruin and sin before a holy God and be humbled by that and then receive the gospel again in a fresh way. And I don't mean I'm preaching another gospel that you've not heard, but I mean to let the gospel wash over you like it has not in a long time. That's what I experienced as I was preparing this sermon. If our sin is not laid before us, as I said, the Advent season becomes cheap. If we don't clearly perceive and have our sinful hearts on display before our eyes, we will never truly celebrate the first coming of Jesus. So in order to do that, we're going to start at the beginning. We're going to start in the book of Genesis. Right? Chapter 1. Right? You guys know the story. In the beginning, God created everything. He spoke everything into existence in six days. And on that sixth day, God created man. And after God had created all things, including man, we read this, Genesis 1.31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So God looks out on the entire universe, everything that is, that he spoke into being, which is everything in existence, including man, including mankind, and declares it to be very good. Now, unless someone knows something that I don't, I'm pretty sure this is the only time that God ever looked at man and said man was very good. That's just a kind of a, a fun thought. This is the only time that I know of in the Bible that God looks at mankind and says, this is a good thing. Because a few chapters later in, in Genesis with Noah, it says God's heart is grieved by man. But everything was perfect at this point. Chapter 1, verse 31, everything is perfect. There was no death. There was no sickness. There was no disease. 
There was no disagreements. Man and woman had no disagreement. There was no war. There was no strife. Work was actually enjoyable. And yes, work did indeed exist before the fall. But pain didn't exist. There were no such thing as natural disasters. Everything was in harmony. But most of all, man had perfect communion with God. Perfect communion. We can't fathom this. Man had perfect communion with God. And I know this, Christians, we have communion with God through the Lord Jesus Christ for certain. But this is the fact that man could go before God with no mediator. Man had no need for a mediator yet. Man could go to God unfettered, unrestricted, and have full access before the face of God Himself. God had no displeasure toward man at all. That is astounding to think about. There was a point in time where God had no displeasure toward mankind whatsoever. That God and man were not enemies, but they were at peace with each other. Again, we cannot imagine this. And this is all because sin had not yet entered into the world. You fast forward to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Pay attention to this. We're going to be going back to these ideas a lot. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God gave Adam one command. Do not eat of this one particular tree. Everything else that you see is fair game. It's all yours, but this one thing, stay away from it. Do not eat of this one particular tree. And some of us would say, that sounds very arbitrary. Why that tree? What's wrong with that tree? But I'll lay this before you. God gave this command to Adam to demonstrate that he is God. To demonstrate to Adam, I am God. I am the sovereign one. I am the one who is in charge. God is showing Adam that he is the one that is to be obeyed and that man is obligated as the creation to obey the Creator. I personally don't think there was anything inherently wrong with this tree. Because God looked over everything he made and it was very good. God gives this commandment to Adam to establish that he is the authority. Man is under the authority of God and is obligated to obey him. So here we can see that God made a covenant with Adam. This is huge. God made a covenant with Adam. Now a covenant is a binding, formal agreement. And here were the terms of this covenant. In a nutshell, obey me and live forever. Obey me and live for eternity. Disobey me and you shall surely die. Which doesn't mean they don't die on the spot the moment he disobeys God, but that your death is certain. There will definitely come a day when you die. And in light of the New Testament, we see that this was both a spiritual death promised and a physical death. You eat of that tree, you will spiritually die, and your physical death is a certainty. Do not eat of the tree, says God. As long as you don't eat of it, you will live. But if you break this covenant that I have established with you on this day, you will suffer my wrath, I promise you. This is what theologians call the covenant of works. Remember that term. I'm going to use it a lot. The covenant of works. And it's called that because Adam's obedience was the condition for living eternally. 
Okay? His disobedience would break the covenant. So this covenant is works-based. Adam, if, if you can obey me, you get the blessing. If you disobey me, the curse is yours. It's a works-based covenant God made with Adam, hence the name. But then you guys, again, you know the story. God goes on to create Eve from Adam's rib, and everything is still perfect for a time. We're not, insu- we're not entirely sure how long. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I would imagine not so long after the covenant of works was made with Adam, we see this, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This passage is gut-wrenching. I'm not just saying that for dramatic effect. If you don't see that, if this passage doesn't disturb you to see the goodness of God toward Adam giving him dominion over everything, giving him one commandment. Let me establish that I'm the authority. You're to love me. I've given you all this blessing. You have unfettered communion with me. I've given you one rule. And he ate. Gut-wrenching passage. Adam broke the covenant. Adam broke the covenant of works, and God's fierce wrath is kindled against mankind. Sin has now entered the world and mankind. This is what we call the fall. The fall of man. Our misery... So what sin is. Our misery has now entered the world. Mankind has fallen, and the whole world has fallen with mankind. The earth is ruined. God pronounces curses in chapter 3. We'll get to the promises next week, but he, he pronounces curses over the earth. Work will be hard. There will be pain, disease, death, war, hatred. Everything wicked will come from this one sin. And mankind is ruined. Adam and Eve are now sinners. Think about the weight of that. They were not sinners before this moment. And now the displeasure of God is upon them. The wrath of God is kindled against them. Sin has broken their perfect communion with God. And in Genesis 3.24, we see the result of sin. He, God, drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, He placed the cherubim as an angel with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That's the result. God drove them out. Drove them out. In this verse, we see that God vindicated His holiness. He vindicated His holiness, and He vindicated His faithfulness to His Word. He said, I will, have not, I will drive you out. You will die. You will incur My wrath if you break this covenant. And God vindicates you that He is faithful to what He says. God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden. Out of His presence is what this is meant to symbolize to us. Man, by his sin, is now separated from God. This is meant to show us and remind us that God is holy. That he will not in any way be associated with sin. Even the smallest, most trivial sin. He will not allow sin-covered beings into his presence. And that's exactly what Adam had become. In effect, in him driving him from the Garden of Eden, God is saying, you broke my covenant, get away from me. Let the weight of that sit on you. 
That's what God is telling Adam, away from me. Which should remind us of Christ saying in the final judgment, God says, away from me, I never knew you. This is what God says to sinners. You broke my covenant. Get out of my face. Now, the sin of Adam is very, very relevant to us because Adam didn't just represent himself in the covenant. Adam represented us as well. And we're all born under the covenant of works. We're born under that covenant that God made with man, that covenant of works, obey me and live, disobey me and die. Adam was our representative and he broke the covenant. So we are born into this world with a failure of a representative. Like we read in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now how have all sinned whenever Adam is the one who broke the commandment? What this text is telling us is that sin and death have spread to all of Adam's posterity through Adam's sin. That this, and this made me uncomfortable to write this, but there's no other way to get around this. God has imputed us with Adam's guilt. God has laid the guilt of Adam on us because he was our representative. He represented all of us who would ever come from him, all of his posterity. That's who he stood in their place in that covenant. He failed. Became guilty, God now renders all of us guilty in that. This is this idea in theology we have called federal headship. Federal means covenant, that there is a head of the covenant. That God had appointed Adam to represent the entirety of the human race. He was our federal head, our covenant representative. Now hear me out. If that sounds weird or unfair to you, because I know that's what you're thinking. If that sounds weird or unfair to you, I want to remind you something. In every covenant God has ever made throughout human history, God always sovereignly, meaning as He wills, He sovereignly chooses someone to be the representative of that covenant. We see that with Adam. The Adamic covenant, the covenant of works, He chooses Adam. The Noahic covenant, He chose Noah to be the representative. The Abrahamic covenant, He chose Abram. The Mosaic covenant, He chose Moses. The Davidic covenant, He chose David. And the covenant of grace, He chose His son, Jesus. He always sovereignly appoints one man to represent the people. Always. And trust me, by the end of this sermon, you're going to see that you want someone to represent you. You don't want to represent yourself because it never goes well. But Adam represented us in the covenant of works and failed to keep it. And he sinned and became a sinner. And now, because of Adam's disobedience, we are all sinners. We are born sinners. As we read earlier in Psalm 51, verse 5, David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he's not calling his mother a harlot. He's not saying that she was sinning, that he was conceived in sin in that way. But he's saying sperm met egg, and I was formed, and I was a sinner. From conception, I am a sinner. From the womb that we have all inherited guilt from the womb on. So again, like I said earlier, we are born with Adam's guilt upon us. Furthermore, to be born a sinner means that we are born with the desire to sin. We are born with a propensity to do that which God hates. Jesus Christ says we are born slaves to sin. He says whoever sins is a slave to sin. We're born sinners. That's why we sin. We're slaves to it. Paul in Romans 8 actually says that we are all God-haters by birth. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. This is the mind you're born with. Your fleshly mind, your natural mind, is hostile to God, meaning it hates God. Why? For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
We're born with a desire to break God's law, and we don't even have the will. We don't even have the ability to do what pleases God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So I know many of you here would say, I never hated God, or I have never hated God. But hear me out this. Jesus, God in the flesh, says this in the Gospel of John. If you love me, keep my commandments. The inverse is true then. If you break my commandments, you must hate me. So our actions prove that we're God-haters, even if we've never said it with our mouth, or we've never consciously thought it. Your actions give way to what your heart really is. You've broken the commands of God. We were all born God-haters. So we are born with guilt on us already and the desire to break God's law, all because of Adam, our representative, and his failure to keep the covenant of works. But the covenant of works isn't the only covenant God made. I'm going to give you guys an overrun of a covenant theology in a nutshell. The covenant of works is not the only covenant God made. Later, God made the Mosaic covenant with Israel. And it's called the Mosaic covenant because Moses was the mediator of that covenant. This is usually what Paul refers to as the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. So God makes the Mosaic covenant with Israel. You read about this in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. In the Mosaic covenant, if I could boil it down to this to save you reading a bunch of books... Um, Still read the books, they're good. Um, The Mosaic Covenant is basically just a restatement of the covenant of works. It's basically a a republishing of the covenant of works. And what I mean by that is the principle of the Mosaic Covenant is this. Obey me and live. That's the principle. Obey me and live. You can read it in Deuteronomy. I believe it it maybe starts in chapter 18. I'm, I'm blanking on that right now. In the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, God promises land... Life, safety, good crops, his very presence, that he will be their God and they will be his people if they obey his covenant and do not turn to the left or to the right and keep all of his statutes and keep all of his commands. Then they will receive the blessing. And they will receive the curses if they break covenant with him. I'm paraphrasing, but God God says, I will crush you. I will send you off into exile. I'll utterly destroy you if you break my covenant. So we see this is the exact same concept as the covenant God made with Adam. Obey me and live, disobey me and die. But there's one major difference. Whenever God made the covenant with Adam, Adam was not yet a sinner. Adam was in what what the theologians back in the day said, a state of innocency. He was not yet a sinner. He had no sinful nature. And again, how Adam with no sinful nature sinned is a mystery to us to this day. We could talk about that another time. Feel free to pick me with questions later. But God made a covenant with Adam. Adam was not yet a sinner, which means that Adam had a shot at keeping the, at keeping the covenant. But in the Mosaic covenant, it's made with sinners. It's made with the posterity of Adam. It's made with sinful people who are already God-haters, who already desire to break God's command. This covenant is made with people who cannot keep it. People who cannot render the obedience that God demands for blessing. So why did he give it? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 why. That the purpose in God giving this covenant was to point us to our inability to keep it. Essentially, if I would say this, the point of the Mosaic covenant was to point us back to the covenant of works. It's to point us back to the covenant God made with Adam. 
to show us that we are indeed sinners, to remind us day in and day out, you are in Adam. You are Adam's seed. Adam is your representative. You have failed. You're a sinner. But the Mosaic Covenant shows us that we're not just sinners by nature, by birth, but we're sinners by action. We're sinners by deed. Not only is Adam's guilt imputed to us, but that we have racked up our own guilt. Now the centerpiece of the Mosaic Covenant, as I'm sure most of you guys know, is the Ten Commandments. All of the laws of this covenant are summed up and fit under the Ten Commandments. So we're going to go through every one of them. My prayer in this is that you would deal honestly with yourself. Deal honestly with yourself and see your sin. Leave no stone unturned. Be as real with yourself as you can. I want us all to see how we break the covenant of works personally. It's not just all Adam. It's not, I've done this as well. To see how we're all guilty. How we all have willfully and gladly broken the covenant with God. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. And God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt into the house of, or out of the house of slavery. Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Literally, the Hebrew says, no gods before my face. You are to have nothing competing with me. Nothing that's on a pedestal even near me. I am to be the centerpiece of your entire life. All of your decision making is to be based off of my character and who I am. Everything you do, every thought you have is meant to be based around me. I am Yahweh, your God. You will have no other. I am the center of all things. But we place all manner of things ahead of Him. Family. Jobs. Relationships that we so desire. School. As lame as this sounds, video games. Recreation, television, we put all kinds of things ahead of him. Trivial things. Completely disregard this commandment. Make no time for him. Give him no, no, not a thought. God becomes an afterthought for us most days. We don't consult his word. And we have hundreds of functional gods in our lives that we will put on the throne of our heart and go after them and follow them. Commandment two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In this commandment we see God says, first, don't make any images of me Two, don't, definitely don't worship any of those images or bow down to them as if you're worshiping me with those idols. When I can boil that down to for our purposes this evening, God has demanded specific worship. God has demanded reverent worship. We are to treat Him as He says we are to treat Him. We are to revere Him as He says we are to worship Him as He says. 
We don't get to make idols out of God. He is who He says He is. We don't get to make Him out into our own image or in the image of something else or overemphasize one characteristic of God and downplay another in order that we might be made comfortable with Him. We worship Him as He says He is and we worship Him as He says that He is to be worshipped. But so often we act as if we can determine who He is. God is like this. Granted, we don't make statues. God is like this fish, no. God is... All love always, not wrath. Or God is all wrath always and not love. God is not holy. He would let me slide on this sin. He's not really that upset over this stuff. God demands that we worship Him as He says that He is to be worshipped. But we often think that we're throwing God a bone and we're going to worship Him and think of Him however we please. And disregard so many attributes of God. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Hear me on this. This is more than saying, oh God, but it is not less than that. I hear it all the time. Let let that go, that nonsense go, that blasphemy of treating the name of God as if it's a curse word or treating the name of Christ as if it's something common. But in the third commandment, God demands that we treat Him and all things associated with Him, including His Word and everything contained therein, with respect. With reverence. That we regard Him as holy. For the Lord will not hold Him guiltless who takes His name in vain. That we not mischaracterize God. That we not say we're going to do something in God's name that He has not commanded us to do. That we won't misrepresent Him to the world, but often we treat God as common. We profane Him. We blaspheme His name in so many different ways. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here we see God says we are to set aside one day a week specifically for worship. In the New Testament, we see that that was switched to the Lord's Day on Sunday, that there is to be a specific day for rest and worship, that we would think on the things of God, that we would meditate on the nature of God, that we would come together as a congregation, the church, and sit under the ministry of the Word and receive the sacraments. That we would lay ourselves open before God, dwell on Him, But do we not often disregard the purpose for Sabbath? Many people treat this commandment as if it's not even relevant anymore. People fill the Sabbath day with all manner of things that have nothing to do with the Lord. They give Him no second thought and they treat Sunday as if it's a free day to do whatever they will and catch up on all the other work that they should have got done the other six days. Instead of having a day for resting and knowing who God is. Fifth, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We are commanded to respect our parents, even if you're out of their home, even if you're not dependent upon them anymore. Moreover, this command tells us we are to show honor to those who are in authority over us because indeed God has placed them in authority over us. This can get applied out to government, police. This can get applied to a lot of different things. 
That we are to respect those in authority over us, but especially our parents. But what do we do? So often, we, we are a people who hate authority. And we disrespect the God-given authority. We disregard the God-given authorities that are over us. We talk down to our parents. I'm not saying you have to do everything they ever tell you to do, especially if you're out of their house. But talk bad about them behind their back. Talk down to them when we talk to them. Disrespect them and not honor them as the ones God had put in charge of us. Sixth, you shall not murder. That one's pretty simple. Do not murder. Let's go deeper than that. Do not wish ill on another person. Do not do harm to someone else. But so often we hate other people and we wish ill on them and we will not go out of our way to try to keep them from harm's way, but we secretly hope and sometimes pray, if we're honest, that they would fall into suffering. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Again, many sins will fit under this. You don't sleep with someone you're not married to. You don't indulge in pornography. Anything sexual that happens outside of the marriage bed between one man and one woman is sin. Now, I'll leave it at this. We are so often consumed with lust. I'm not just talking to the porn addicts in here. We're so often consumed with lust. Men and women both. I'm not just talking to the men in this church. Eight, you shall not steal. Do not take what isn't yours. Work honestly. Have only what belongs to you. But we steal from our employers, don't we? We don't work hard for them all the time. We beat our time in. We only do half our work. Someone else will pick up on that. We beat our time in. Steal from our employers. I know people that cheat on their taxes. Instead of rendering unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar... College students that cheat on their work. In general, just taking what is not rightfully yours, that which you have not worked for. Nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God is demanding that we be honest and never be deceitful under any circumstances. Do not deceive. But how often have you kept yourself out of trouble by lying? How often have you deceived someone into thinking that you're something you're not, that they might think better of you? Refuse to be honest with them. And ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. To covet is to inordinately desire that which does not belong to you. You see something someone else has, and you must have it. In this commandment, God's saying, be content with the lot that I've given you in life. Be content with what I have given you. I'm the sovereign one. I've given it to you. I've taken it from you, whatever it may be. But we are never satisfied. We're never content. We always want something else. We see how God's blessed someone else with whatever it may be, and we say, unfair. And we grumble against God instead of seeing the manifold blessings that He's given us. We're ingrates. We don't have time to go into it, but Jesus then takes these Ten Commandments, two of them, in His Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and He expounds on them, and He says, yeah, if you hate someone in your heart, you're a murderer. If you lust after a woman in your heart, you're an adulterer. Jesus shows us the heart of the Ten Commandments, that the desire to sin is sin. 
The desire to break the commandments is sin. It's not just about physically breaking the law of Moses. It's about the posture of your heart. And we see that idea, the posture of the heart, summed up in Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's a summary of the Mosaic Covenant right there. And hear me, no one has kept that. Not for one minute has any mere man ever lived his life, not for one second lived his life loving God with his entire being. To be utterly consumed with the glory of God that you would rather die than transgress even the smallest of His commandments. No one has ever lived that way. None of the seed of Adam. The Mosaic Covenant shows us that we are not only sinners by birth, but that we are sinners by our own willful, glad action. We've not just inherited Adam's guilt, we racked up personal guilt before God. And here's the dreadful part of being sinners also found in the Mosaic Covenant. This should terrify you. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The first part, you'll be thinking, oh, this is great. Just listen. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to faithfulness, or slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That phrase, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God will not let sin go unpunished. He will not let a single sin slide. The debt to God that you have incurred for your sins will be settled. God punishes sinners. He sends them to hell. And we stand condemned as the guilty ones. And He will not clear the guilty. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die. In Adam all die. We were born in Adam. He condemned us in His representation. And we have sinned ourselves. We are going to die. We need a new representative before God. We need our personal sins forgiven. And if these things don't happen, we will perish. And like Adam was driven from Eden, we will be driven from the presence of God into an eternal hell. If this does not put fear into your heart, you are a fool. Even if you're a Christian, the thought of this should terrify you if you understand the holiness of God. If you have an ounce of the fear of God, this should disturb you a little bit because God's anger is laid upon every man for their sins. I hope that we can see our need for a Savior. I hope we can see our need for a Savior because when we stand before the judgment throne of God, He will lay our sins before us and find us guilty. And our mediator between us and God in the natural state we were born into is Adam, the sinner. A sinner being represented by a sinner. Both both of which God hates. We will be found guilty. 
And God will punish the guilty. So hear me on this. We don't need a moral example. The law has given us one. We don't need someone to be a moral example for us. We don't need some long-haired hippie from Nazareth to show us how we can all just get along better. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. I hope you can see that. And know this, our need for a Savior does not obligate God to send one. Let me give you an analogy, and it's almost so worthless, it's not worth using, but this is the best that I got. You build someone a house. You're rich beyond measure. You build someone a house. You furnish it for them. You get them a car, and you give them a million dollars, cash money. And they burn it all to the ground that very night. And then they come to you the next morning and say, I need a place to stay. I need money. They've spit on your grace to them. Are you obligated to let them into your home? Just naturally. What's your knee jerk to that? Would you let such a person into your home? Would you build such a person another house? Would you give such a person money? That pales in in comparison to what we have done. God has given us breath and we've used it to blaspheme Him. He's given us our bodies and we've, choose, we've chosen to sin against Him. He's given us rational minds and we've devised new ways to sin. We spit in His face on the daily. We need God to do something. Hear me on that. We don't need to do something. We need God to do something. We need God to do something to save us from His wrath and our sins. We need God to save us from God. That's who we need to be saved from. People talk about you need saved. Yes, you need saved from God Himself. You need saved from the wrath of God. And God would be justified to do nothing. To let us bear the penalty that we deserve. But in grace... Upon grace, upon grace, God sent His Son, born of a virgin, to be our Savior. Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. He will save His people. God will not clear the guilty. There will be punishment for sin, but in His most holy wisdom, God determined to lay our guilt upon Christ and count Him as guilty in our place, and to treat Christ as a sinner. Isaiah the prophet said, it was Yahweh's good plan to crush Him. It was the Lord's good plan to crush Him and cause Him grief. This is what God had determined. We needed a new representative to keep the covenant that we had broken in Adam. And God gave us Christ born under the law to keep the law for us, to keep the covenant of works that we have broken. And then God takes the sinless, perfect Christ, whom Paul calls the last Adam, and lays our sin upon Him on the cross. And on that tree, Christ made propitiation for sinners. On the cross, Christ satisfied the wrath that we deserve. Being our new representative. 
Why would God do this? Romans chapter 3 tells us that God set forward Christ as the propitiation for sins, the satisfier of His wrath, so that God might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. That the one who trusts in Christ, God might justify that person. God might make that person right with Him while God's still being just. While God's still being holy and executing justice. This is why Christ came into the world. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That's gospel. By one man we were condemned, by one man we were saved. Christ is the Savior that we needed. Christ is how Exodus 34, 6, and 7 can be true. That God forgives iniquities but doesn't clear the guilty. Because Christ put your guilt, just as Adam's guilt was imputed to you, God then imputes your guilt to Christ. He doesn't clear the guilty. He still punishes so that he might be just and the justifier. That he might be a God, the Lord that forgives iniquities. Because Christ became the guilty one. So we needed a Savior. And we didn't deserve one. But God gave us the Savior in his Son, Jesus Christ. Think about that, like the magnitude of that statement. We needed a Savior and didn't deserve one. But God gave us one anyway. And He didn't just give us anyone. He gave us His very Son. What love is this? This is what we're celebrating this season. This is the purpose of the first advent. This is the purpose of the first coming of the Lord Jesus. This is what we celebrate. This is what we celebrate daily in our hearts and publicly at this time. And again, without having this truth on our hearts, this holiday is empty and meaningless. We must remember. That's one of the most, the top five, I think, commands in the Old Testament. Remember, Israel. Remember who I am. Remember who you are. Remember what I've done for you. We must remember. So know this, unbeliever. If you have not turned to Christ by faith, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in this Savior, know this, you need a Savior. As it stands right now, you are guilty before God. I implore you to throw yourself on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. God says, any who come to Christ, I will never cast out what Jesus says. I'll never cast you away if you come to me. Come to Him by faith or be counted guilty for your sin. Those are your options. And believer, you need a Savior. Christian, you still need a Savior. It's not past tense. I needed one, and I got one. No, it's I need one today. I have sinned today. I need a Savior now. I do not love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I need a new representative. I need Him daily. There's never a second of, of any day that we don't need 
the Christ. That we don't need the Savior. Know that. That will definitely keep us from becoming puffed up and self-righteous. We need Him every day. But I have two very quick points of application for us to consider. Christians, these are, these are for Christians. See your sin daily and mourn your sin. I beg you this. If you haven't memorized them, memorize the Ten Commandments that you might reflect on them regularly. Commit yourself to looking at the law of God. Let yourself be confronted by it. See your failure to keep covenant with God in the covenant of works. See your failure every day. Let it humble you. Let you see, let let yourself see what a wretch that you are, that you are unable to please God in and of yourself. That you are indeed guilty of sin. But don't become a navel gazer. Don't stare down all the time. Remember this great truth. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, caused us to be made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Let the law beat you, but know that. But God, two most beautiful words in the whole Bible. I cannot keep the law. I fail. But God, being rich in mercy, has done this for me. He's given me a Savior. Christian, God has saved you through the person and work of Christ. God has provided you with the most perfect Savior. Every need you ever had has been met. See that in Christ the Lord. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, I have a great need for Christ. And I have a great Christ for my need. Your sins have been forgiven. Your representative is now not Adam, but Jesus Christ, the righteous. There will be no condemnation for you ever. 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 Because Jesus Christ took the cup of God's wrath and drank it down to its last dregs for you. He is the Savior. Rejoice. God has given you. That's what I want you to do. Rejoice. God has given you a Savior. You are not worthy of Him. But He is yours. And you are His. 1 Corinthians 15.22 in its totality. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. God sent the Savior so that we would live. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us the Christ that we need. Thank you for sending the Messiah, your Son. God, we are miserable and we don't deserve you for one second. Christ, we don't deserve you. But in agreement with the Father of your own volition, you came to be the sacrifice for sin, to be the last Adam that you might represent your people in the covenant of grace. That we're no longer under a covenant of works, but Christ, you are our mediator. You underwent the covenant of works for us that you might give us grace. We thank you and we praise you for that. Help us to glory in that. Let us see you as you truly are and rejoice. We love you. 
Let us see you rightly, please. In Christ's name, amen.